is yet another dimension that is beyond that which is familiar to us. A dimension that is as vast as the universe itself and free of the bonds of time. It is the ground where light and dark were born, where science and superstition are close relatives, and it resides somewhere between the pit of our fears and the summit of hope itself. This is the dimension above our own, divided by nothing more than the air we breathe. It's here, now. Welcome to Spooktacular. His name is Ezekiel. He spent his time on this earth experiencing incredible visions. He was a man who saw that which is beyond our scope of understanding. A man who groaned in pain with knowledge of slaughter that would soon be set upon Israel. A man instructed to warn his people that God was sharpening his sword and would soon draw it against the wicked. The time is somewhere near the 6th century. The Jewish people have been exiled to a new empire called Babylon. God is at work through the lives of the few who are faithful to him. Many of them are referred to as prophets. We find our man receiving word of the Creator's plans to come against Israel. His instruction to preach against the sanctuaries of these people and to weep for the great slaughter is at hand. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and find your seats. We're going to get started. It is so good to be uh, in the house of the Lord. I uh, actually wish that I could be there with you today. Carmen and I have both been pretty sick this week. Uh, our tests have actually finally come back negative for uh, COVID. Uh, but we have decided out of an abundance of caution just not to be there with you today because of how sick we felt. Uh, so uh, we are going to go ahead and dive right into the word. We are in our uh, fourth week. Is that right? Are we in our third week? I think we're in our fourth week. Yeah, of uh, the uh, book of Ezekiel. We're calling the series Spooktacular. We're going to be reading out of Ezekiel chapters 21 through 24 today. So go ahead and get those uh, uh, scriptures ready if you're going to be using your own Bible, which I think is always great. And hopefully you have read ahead. That's something we've been encouraging you to do during this time. Uh, I have entitled today's message quite simply, The Sword, and you'll see why. Uh, shortly because we will see the sword uh, brought out and today we're going to be wrapping up ultimately what is uh, the the final part of the prophecies that God uh, gave to Ezekiel to present to the children of Israel before they were the warnings the kind of the hey you need to know what's happening and why it's happening uh, testimonies and uh, we're going to kind of get to the end of that part of the book here today uh, as the sword is revealed. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in Ezekiel chapter 21. Of course, we're going through four chapters, so I will not be reading all of the verses. 
Uh, I am going to try to do my best to cover as much content as I can. And let me just say this, there, there is a study guide for everything that we're teaching available online. Uh, they are uh, made available on Facebook. You can grab those. They are yours to use uh, to go deeper. Uh, and there is just a lot of content that I am not able to cover in the amount of time that I have. So I'd really encourage you to do that. Uh, some of that content is juicy sometimes. It's things I'm not comfortable with saying, uh, uh, maybe uh, not just in video, but even uh, live there in person. So uh, the word of the Lord came, uh, came to me, Ezekiel 21. So standard introduction that Ezekiel will bring. Verse 2, son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. So uh, this is a kind of a difficult uh, introduction for a lot of people because uh, the word comes to uh, Ezekiel to go and face Jerusalem, the holy city, the sanctuaries, the places where they worship, and to tell them that his sword has been removed from its sheath and that he, that, that he will be cutting off both the righteous and the wicked. And this, this is difficult because as Christians, we so often kind of just like immediately gravitate to being covered as the righteous and being protected because we're his children. And yet here we have this passage that says uh, a little bit differently. Verse four, because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. Uh, remember this passage, this parable uh, that we talked about earlier in the book, the fathers eat grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So when this parable is presented, God says, this is a parable that you use. And it's, it's this idea that the uh, kind of like when you eat a grape and you kind of get that ooh, that that sour feeling uh, that 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 way it kind of just draws your mouth to uh, the the children of Israel would say, well, you know, it's like this. It's like the fathers were the ones eating the grapes, but we're the ones that are having to suffer the consequences because it turns out they're sour and they weren't sweet like somebody might have thought they were, and so. They use this parable, this type of, of illustration to justify the fact that, well, if anything's wrong with society, it is those that came before ours fault. They did this. They made it this way. And it's really not our fault. And, and, and their default, we'll get to in a moment, is that they therefore just kind of live these lives of justification and they don't draw clear lines in the sand. And, and this imagery of the sword is going to be carried out throughout the remainder of this chapter. But, but this picture that we have is uh, when he says that he will cut off both the righteous and the wicked, this is not to uh, create 
for us this idea that he actually comes and attacks the, the righteous and really even the wicked in this illustration, there is a, a scattering that's going to take place. And what he's saying is that though the righteous might be spared from the, uh, the, the sword uh, actually puncturing them or from desolation through some type of, of uh, famine or pestilence, that, that the righteous inside of that group will be scattered abroad. And we know this to be true because we've already done the book of Daniel. We've taken a look at Jeremiah and Habakkuk. And when we look at Daniel, just for instance, we get Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of those are righteous young men. Why are they righteous? I'll go ahead and say the same I said when we were in the book of Daniel. It is because they were raised in households that made the investment into their lives. There had been a king that had come on the scene for a very brief period of time when they were children, definitely while their parents were young, that had tried, had, had worked hard to try to turn Israel back to the Lord. He died in battle, and ultimately their wickedness ran rampant, but there was a remnant. There was a group of people who turned their hearts to heaven, and, uh, and we see that some of the righteous are going to be cut off, but they are also going to be sent into this uh, uh, wilderness, into Babylon, into captivity. Now, the imagery of the sword will continue. I'm not going to read all of these verses because God's going to go into detail about uh, uh, just how incredibly intense this is going to be. Let's go down to verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me again. Another introduction here. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost, make it at the head of the way to a city. So he says, that there's going to be this division, right? Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem, the fortified. So he says that Nebuchadnezzar has the intention of coming and wiping out, bringing destruction across the entire region. It's not just Israel, but it is the entire region. And, and he's going to explain exactly what this this signpost is here for the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He, it says he consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams to open the mouth with murder to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. So, uh, they are going to themselves... The, 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 the Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are going to come to this crossroad, right? And to one path, you'll see the Ammonites. And now the other path, he would see Israel. And he's going to do what he does. He's going to 
seek the counsel of his pagan gods, and then there is going to, in this divination, there's going to be a response, God says. And that response is going to point them towards Israel. And so they're going to come with the full force of their armies onto Jerusalem. The Ammonites will get a reprieve, but Jerusalem will be the first to be destroyed. And he, he says here, if you look, he says, but to them it will seem like a false divination. And why would that be? Because there is just a mindset among the Israelites that God would not allow this to happen. And I, I just keep really meditating on the, the, this book that, I'll be honest with you, is one that I've never taught before and has been one I have steered clear of through my entire ministry. I've, I've always tried to avoid teaching this, and I really felt like God was saying, now's the time to teach this. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking about so many of the mindsets that I uh, uh, hear being uh, shared among, uh, from other believers about how God just would never operate this way. And, and I'm not trying to tell you that God is bringing judgment down on, on you or on a certain group of people. But what I'm saying is that that is exactly what the Israelites themselves were believing. They did not think this could happen. So when the word came that through some, some witchcraft, that through some witchcraft, that there had been a revelation that Jerusalem was the first place to go, they said to themselves, no, no, that can't be. Now, what is it that we, how is it that we respond when God defends us, right? We, we respond with this mindset of, yes, that God's got my back, right? So when God comes down hot and heavy and he's got the full force of his incredible power and he comes down on the enemy, we say, yes, the enemy has been crushed. The question here that I have is what happens when I have fallen away from God and I am now the enemy, when wickedness is uh, just infiltrated all that I am, does God care about that? And why, what makes me exempt from God showing up in the moment if I am acting more like the enemy than I am like one of his children? And they are really struggling with this, right? They are denying it. And then I'll also say, like, like immediately there's an answer within the, the, the series of divinations. And, and I think that when we hear about witchcraft, when we hear about uh, uh, tarot card readings, things like this, like we, we go, oh, that stuff's not real, right? But then some, sometimes we'll hear about something that we'll go, well, man, that was, that was supernatural, the thing that they're talking about. And what if instead of discounting those things, what if we began to ask the question, what could God be doing in the midst of the wicked? What is it that God might be saying through this? Because here's the reality of the situation. They come to this crossroad and they are reaching out to gods that don't exist, but the God, right? Jehovah, Yahweh, he 
is the one that speaks through those divinations. They have no idea who they're speaking to. They think that they're speaking to whatever God it was that they were crying out to, but God is moving and maneuvering within that moment, within that situation. He is showing up because there is a purpose. So the supernatural is happening in the enemy's camp to direct the enemy towards the children of Israel. And I think that that so many times, like, I'll hear about something supernatural and I'll immediately cut it down and go, no, man, that just can't be real. God doesn't do that. It doesn't operate like that. But, but what, if, what if it does? What if the reason that somebody might go to uh, a, 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 a Ouija board and actually come back saying, no, 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 I touched something. I experienced something. Now, besides the fact that I believe they could be actually encountering something that's demonic but what if god is just at work because god is going to use all things right he's going to maneuver through all things and ultimately we know that nebuchadnezzar is wicked but what happens nebuchadnezzar comes to know the lord through daniel and so not only is there a work happening here in uh uh for for the children of israel but there is a work that is beginning to happen for Nebuchadnezzar himself. Let's go down to verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your deeds, your sins appear because you have come to remembrance. He says, you shall be taken in hand and you, O profane wicked one, Prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. So what does he say here? He says that the kings can take their crowns off and the places where they sit, those, 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 those high places, right, the throne, that it is going to be what? Destroyed and it will not be rebuilt. It will not have another king sit on it until Jesus ascends to the throne and so this is a messianic prophecy uh ezekiel is speaking here not even having full comprehension of what it is that he's saying but he tells them that the king is being torn down the princes are being destroyed and ultimately this throne in its in in its completely crushed state will not be rebuilt and will not have another sit on it until it is the right one and we know that there has not been a king in Judah, Israel since this time, and there will not be until Jesus returns. And so we see this beautiful messianic prophecy taking place right here. And then the remainder of the chapter is God making sure that the Ammonites understand that they have not uh, themselves and their own wickedness somehow been exempted from judgment. No, they are a wicked group and they are going to face judgment themselves. And so God says, get ready. You judgment has been delayed, but it has not been forgotten. So let's go to chapter 22, beginning here in verse four. He says, it says, 
you have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made and you have brought your days near. The appointed time of uh, your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. And so he says, he says that the whole world is watching you, right? The whole world is watching you and they're watching your behavior and they now mock you. Why do they mock them? Because you claim to be children of this monotheistic, this single one God, you claim this and yet you live like you aren't committed to him. You live as if that God isn't really the Lord of your life. Now, that, I think, is a really strong message for those of us that live in nations like the United States that have such a strong Christian heritage where the rest of the world has seen the hand of God in our lives. They've heard the messages that we have declared, and now today they see not only a nation that is given over to all types of revelry and sin, but the church participating in so much of that. And, and you'd say, oh, what does that even mean? Guys, I, I have seen, the, in 2020, I have seen some of the craziest stuff. I, I saw a pastor recently who was talking about using crystals to uh, 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 get the, uh, the energy of what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate. I saw another, an entire ministry dedicated to Christian tarot card readings, using cards to, uh, to, to prophesy over what God's about to do in their lives. There has just become within the church this, this, this mindset of just, well, everything's got to be okay. We've got to help everybody feel accepted and a part of it. But the reality is that so much of these things are sin. And so God says, you've become the laughingstock. You're not what you were meant to be. And so he's going to bring forward some of the things that they've done here. So let's look at these. We'll skip down to verse six. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, everyone according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. So who are the princes of Israel? They are the national leaders. They are uh, those, I would say, the politicians, right? And God sees the abuse that they operate in and that people's lives are being taken, that deals are being made that ultimately cost people lives, but even more probably pointed that they are actually responsible for people being specifically singled out and murdered. Verse seven, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You know, this, this picture of the father and mother being treated with contempt is just such an incredibly relevant picture for us of, of how we view those that are elders in our lives, those that have come before us. Uh, I, I know I've said this, but I'll say it again. I keep interacting with people who are uh, 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 a little bit more seasoned in life. And one of the things that they have said to me repeatedly over the course of 2020 is, they feel disrespected, not disrespected because somebody said something mean to them, but because they feel like that people are picking up causes and championing these causes as if they never had anything to do with them, that they never made sacrifice in their own lives. 
and, and we have to be really careful about this. We have to be really careful about the way that we treat the mothers and the fathers, those that are the elders among us, right? And it says the sojourner uh, suffers extortion in your midst, and that is the person that is just simply traveling through. They are in, uh, they, they are not in a home, right? And what do they what do they suffer? They suffer extortion. Like there's a, a desire that they have to come and take from them. And it says that the fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. Verse eight, you have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. And God keeps coming back to this idea of Sabbaths. And and I, I I'm I I have that initial feeling that I think a lot of you do. It's like, well, what what is this? Why do I need to Sabbath? Why do I need to take this break? And uh, it reminded me to go back to, to a time when I really studied the Sabbath. And, and I think that sometimes we forget this. And, and if you haven't heard it, maybe it'll be revelation to you. But Sabbath thing is not about taking a break, right? It's not about like, whoo, I'm really tired and I just, I need to Sabbath, so I'm going to sleep. No, Sabbath was the time where they did no work for their benefit, but they were 100% in community and they were in the word of God and they were learning about God. In essence, they were spending time with God and with God's people, not for their own monetary gain. And so on the Sabbath, this was a day where I did no labor that, 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 that helped me, but it was a time where I was sp spending time with my brothers and sisters in Christ and I was in the word and I was making time to be in the presence of God. Uh, and so God says that you, that you have despised, you have profaned, you do not participate. Verse 9, there are men in you who slander to shed blood. What does that look like? That, that's, a, that's a mindset that says, I know how to manipulate people to violence. And so I will say things, and slander is, is uh, not just simply a lie, but it is a lie against somebody's character. And so there are there is a mindset that says, well, I'll just say this about people. Right. So that violence will 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 be the thing that comes from it. This is very relevant. I mean, how many times do we hear uh, about people in our society, leaders uh, uh, that that we just hear, well, they're a bad person and here's why. And then we don't really see any evidence behind it. Right. That slander that that calls for calls for the, the shedding of blood. That's something we should be very, very, very leery of. And, and he's calling those out here who actually participate. They actually think this way. And he goes on and says, and people in you who eat on the mountains. And so what does that mean? Well, on the mountains is where most of these temples to these pagan gods were at, and they would make the sacrifices and the leftover meat was uh, made available for people to eat and this was forbidden not to eat the meat that was sacrificed to other gods. And he says that they would go up on the mountains and they would engage in this part of sacrificing towards something that was not God. And then he says here, they commit lewdness in your midst. And I'm not going to get into the details on, you know, even how relevant that is for this very week. But lewdness in uh, the Hebrew, zimei, is is not just this idea of some type of lust. It's an actual sexual act. And, and he says that, that, there, that, that these sexual acts were happening publicly, that, that, that these were things that were commonplace. And, and clearly there was a mindset that said, you know, really is it, 
is it that bad? Because if, if it weren't, if people were chastising and shutting this down and calling this out, God would have said that's the right thing to do. But instead, he says it just happens in your midst. And, 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 and I think that's a pretty relevant, re- relevant conversation to, to be had that most of us, if we saw some type of lewd act uh, happening in, in any public forum, we would say that's unacceptable. And yet we even here today in our nation can hear some who would say, well, you know, it's it's really not as bad as you might think that it is. Verse 10, in you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. Uh, One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister his father's daughter, listen, these are things that they're egregious, they're unacceptable, and yet our, our their culture operated like this, and I've got to tell you that it is incredibly surprising to find out how common these acts are in our society. I had a Carmen and I, we do uh, a lot of counseling, and and I never want to uh, violate uh, confidence for anything that somebody shares with me um, that they're walking through. Um, uh, And so just generically, I have had a number of young men over the years that have been struggling with porn addiction. And I'll tell you right now, like I, I, I would say every time, if you are uh, somebody who engages in the act of looking at porn, uh, you, you need to be set free from that. That, uh, that lust in your heart is not the way that God designed you to uh, be operating. And there is freedom. There's incredible freedom uh, in, in the presence of God and in your walk with God uh, that can be had by separating yourself from that. And uh, I encourage you to find an accountability partner if you need help. And, and I can be of assistance. Let me know. Uh, but 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 do everything you can to fight against it. And I've had a number of, of young men come to me over the years and tell me uh, about uh, their struggle. And one of the things that uh, really blows my mind is how many have told me that, that there's an entire industry that is built around this type of pornography with uh, 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 the industry acting out things between family members and step family members and 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 children it, it it's disgusting and yet it is so rampant and this is a problem god's calling out to them and he says here is one of the reasons why i am doing what i am doing he says in you they take bribes to shed blood you you take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion but me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. So he, go, he says, like, like, you go on and you continue to act this way and, and it's making its way down from the leaders to the people and you've forgotten me. So maybe we are 100%, we're night and day different, but my, my concern in reading this is, is, are we forgetting who God is? Are we forgetting the very nature of God? He goes on for the next uh, number of verses and lays out a continuation of consequences. And then he comes back to 
Um, now he's going to actually come into, uh, uh, into the temple. He's going to come at the spiritual leaders. And I think this is important for you to hear. Verse 25, the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. And so uh, you have the prophets, and in order to cover what they have done, primarily, I would argue here, through false prophecy and uh, selfish, the desire for selfish gain, they have been the ones to create their own conspiracies as to why these things are happening, but they themselves are the cause. And so they will use prophecy to go, well, here's what's really happening. This is why, you know, this person's suffering, even though secretly it is because of their own evil and wickedness. Um, Verse 26, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. And so priests, uh, this this word in the Hebrew, uh, the New Testament writers will use this uh, when they are describing pastors and elders. And so this is probably the one that hits the closest home for me. And I think that for you to hear this is important because whether or not uh, I'm your pastor at City Church uh, for the next 10 years or if somebody else ends up stepping into that role, um, there should be a perspective about the fact that there's accountability even in the pastor's life. And I know this. I walk in this. I know that I'm not exempt. He goes on and says, they have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. So this is what he says. He says that they have made no distinction between the holy and the common. It does not do any good for a pastor to take the middle road, right? When there is conflict, right? When there are people who have differing views and especially, and, and, and listen to what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about differing views on what our favorite restaurant is or who, what kind of, you know, what style of music we have. When we are talking about things that impact us in a moral manner, it does not do a pastor any good to, to try not to offend. At the end of the day, if we're going to go to the word and we're going to teach the word, all of us at some point are going to be offended by something because the word of God offends. The gospel is offensive. Why? Because by our own nature, we are sinful. And and this is the problem that as a pastor and just I'll just speak even for myself here, but really uh, for just the, the condition or the. The, the, the place that pastors find themselves in is that it is not easy to just to just say, well, I've got to say this really difficult thing and I really feel like the Holy Spirit's leading me to do it. Uh, but I know that this person I care about is going to be offended by it, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Like that's not an easy thing. And too many times uh, and, and I have been guilty of this in my own life and they were certainly guilty of it here uh, instead of calling things out. They, they have been silent. And what happens when they're silent is that they don't immediately offend, but the unholy and the unclean, it begins to work its way in to the church because somebody says, well, the pastor never addresses this, so it must be okay. And the pastor never reads those verses, so this must be justified. And, uh, you know, there are times where I will talk about something and, you know, uh, I will... 
I will hear the comments or have a conversation with somebody and they'll say, I, I just don't like that. I don't think we should talk about that. And, and that's a tough thing for me to hear because then I know that it's hurting. I know that it's not received, but I also, if it's, if it lines up with the word of God, I know then that it's the thing that needs to be said. Now I will say that if I, uh, as a pastor or if any pastor says something that is not biblically grounded, right? That there is not a biblical truth to it. Absolutely. Then I need to repent of that and I need to make a correction. But if I'm going to the actual source and I'm laying out a, a, a exegetical argument for something, right? And it's not found to be in error, then uh, it, it, perhaps it's something that you should be ready to listen to and to uh, ask God what he would have you to do with it. But they have not done that here. And it, he says that, so he says in the end, he, God says, I am profaned among them. So if, if I am not bold in the word, then I profane God and that is not okay. And ultimately this leads to misrepresentation. And I have to say that I think misrepresentation is a real problem uh, within the church. Uh, and so I go back to this idea of it being grounded in the word. And if it's not grounded in the word, it is wrong. And uh, I think about the, the Christian tarot cards, right? Like there's nothing in scripture that suggests that that is okay. In fact, it is the opposite. Uh, or I think about uh, groups like uh, Westboro, who for years was traveling all over the country, even parts of the world, and they were standing there with their picket signs outside of uh, uh, funerals for people. With, and these signs would say things like, uh, you're going to hell, uh, it's guaranteed. And, and th this just doesn't line up with the word of God. And yet, that is the representation that they were giving. And so misrepresentation can, can fall into several, I think, into, into, it can fall on so many different uh, sides of the fence here uh, that we have to, I have to be really guarded and make sure that I am uh, faithfully and ethically digging into the word and presenting it in a way that represents uh, uh, God's heart. Uh, verse 29, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And so this is, this is, this is everybody, right? We've moved through our uh, national leaders and we have gone through uh you know, those, those uh, individuals that have different forms of leadership, and we've even come into the church. And now he says that the people of the land, the, those, those everyday uh, individuals, that they are guilty as well. And guilty of what? They've practiced extortion and committed robbery. Why? So I, I will always make the argument uh, that... I believe that the best economic system for any society based on historical evidence is going to be a free market system. Uh, we just see that it is the only system that has ever successfully created freedom for its people. Now, inside of a free market system, there will be 
people, or I say there will be, there have been people who have not experienced freedom, and that is not a result of the system, but it is a result potentially of a lack of regulation, but more importantly, it is a result of wicked people who are the ones that are amassing wealth and that what do they do? They amass wealth through the practice of extortion. And why is that? So uh, the desire to see increase in our lives, the desire to have more, uh, that plays itself out in, in everyday life. And if we're not careful, what happens is, is we will begin to look for opportunities where we can make a little extra money here, a little, a little bit there, and it turns into extortion and ultimately into robbery where we're taking advantage of people. And as the children of God, we're not to do that. So uh, is the answer to uh, fixing a system where that type of oppression exists to just burn it down and start over? Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, the, the, the reality is, is that once you've established a system like that, the better thing to do is to be the action, to be the person that starts to do well and then to work towards helping to create fair and equitable legislation that will help protect those who are in need. Remember that uh, Jesus said that he came, right, to, uh, to help those who were in need. And that is what we are called to do. And so this idea says that they have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. I know every time I talk about justice, I get somebody all roiled up, but I'll just tell you that justice is action. Justice is not a series of keyboard strokes or a great idea. Uh, justice is not uh, uh, a screaming and yelling. Justice is action. That's where it begins. And I would just encourage you that uh, to be exempt from this one right here, that what we do is we help those who are in need. First, we have to identify the needs. And, and for some of you, that's what you're going to do. You're going to be really good at identifying the needs of others. And then there are going to be those who need to fund the need. And then there are going to be those that need to meet the need. But together, that's the action of justice, of making sure that that person who has been oppressed can step out of that oppression. And that's what we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of the action of the doing. That's why we do what we do with RED. And I would encourage you to get involved in the process. Some go and pick up food and get it to the facility. Some handle paperwork. Uh, many are needed for prepping and handing out the food. And we need some that'll be there praying and ministering to people. And that's just the beginning, building those relationships so that we can discover who are those that we genuinely can help to make their lives better. And at the end of the day, God says that the people are guilty of this, not being the hands and feet, not being the ones that are bringing the action. Now, Exodus uh, 23 is going to be a chapter that I'm not going to read through. Um, because it is, uh, it's pretty graphic, uh, and we have a, a, especially right now, while we have no kids uh, services, there are some uh, conversation points in there, uh, really just some language that I think is uh, probably best served not to be read. Uh, I do want to just cover the, the brief uh, context of it. Verse one, the word of the Lord came to me. And so this is directly from God, son of man, 
there were two women, the daughters of one mother. I'm going to skip verse 3 intentionally because I want to get you to this. Verse 4, Ahola was the name of the elder and Aholibah was uh, the name of, the, of her sister. They became mine and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria and Aholibah is Jerusalem. So these are Israel and Judah. And God acknowledges that there's a divide, so he sees them as sisters. And Ahola means my tent, and Aholabah means my tent is in her. And it might feel like, well, that's kind of an odd uh, type of language to be used. Uh, what he's communicating there is, so a tent was a place of dwelling. Uh, it was a place that you went to sit and for communion. It was, if you were out doing things, you were out of the tent. And so for them, this was a place of dwelling. And so what God's saying is that, that these were the places of my dwelling. And so God says, this is where I dwelled. Now, the remainder of this chapter, uh, God's going to give what is very graphic imagery and it is describing how he views spiritual adultery. And I would really challenge you to go and read this and to take some time and let it just kind of uh, minister to you. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's really heartbreaking uh, to, to really understand exactly what God sees and how it makes him feel when uh, people will call themselves believers and then either knowingly uh, reject that or even allow it to become whitewashed, watered down, and ultimately infiltrated by ideologies that do not line up with the word of God. And he sees this as adultery. And so he's giving this imagery that, that, that the children of Israel, Judah, that they have been caught in these cycles of adultery when it comes to their relationship with God. And so God sees this covenant that he has with you, the believer, uh, as being one that really matters. Uh, so we'll go to Ezekiel 24 and verse 2. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem, this very day. So he comes to the end of this heart-wrenching uh, picture of spiritual adultery, and he says, all right, we've said what we need to say, write down this day why because the king of babylon has laid siege to jerusalem and of course somebody has done the math and uh uh they have traced this back to be based on a gregorian calendar which we use january 15th 588 bc and this is a day recorded because it is the day where all of the prophecies now and all of the warnings now culminate into this moment and everything that God said would happen if there wasn't repentance has happened and there was no repentance uh, among the entirety of Israel verse 3 and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them thus says the Lord God set on the pot set it on pour in water also put in the pieces of meat all the good pieces the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, see also its bones in it. So he says, you're going to prepare this incredible 
uh, stew. Uh, there's going to be all of the, the best meats in it, right? And it's going to be filled with flavor. This would have been the type of meal that everybody would have wanted, and it would have been an expensive, right? It would have been choice. So it, it would have been out of the price range of the majority of the people who would have been hearing this, and even for those that could, it would have been the type of meal that would have been exceedingly above their daily average meal. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. What does he say? The corrosion, right? It has now tainted the meat. Uh, and so corrosion here is in the Hebrew would be the same as what we would see as rust. And he says here, he says that it's that this that this uh, this 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 has diseased the meat. It has made the meat unedible that if somebody were to get it now, it would make them sick. And so the corrosion is ruining the entire pot. And he says, don't, don't, don't sit there and pull out the choice pieces and assign them. It's all got to go, right? Uh, you can't go, man, well, that's the, that's the prime rib right there. You know, if I'm going to chant, I'll chance it for that. He says, no, it's all tainted. It's not edible. And what's he communicating? He's communicating that, that Israel is all the choice cuts. They are the best. Out of the entire world, they are his, and he loves them. But they have maintained this pot that is corrosive. And instead of keeping it clean, they have allowed it to become toxic. And that now all must be thrown out. Now, go down to verse 16, and we're going to end here uh, this morning. And it's pretty somber. Uh, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Now, if you know me, what you know about me is that I love uh, family. I love my wife and my kids, and I think about them in nearly every aspect of of my life, every decision that I make, I think about how it would impact them. And when I read through this years and years ago, uh, it this chapter bothered me so much that uh, uh, for almost a decade I would not uh, I would not read this. Actually, longer than that, honestly, almost two decades, I would not read through Ezekiel because of how. Uh, tender this made me feel and God says he says I'm going to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke in in a in the blink of an eye and what is that sigh but not aloud make no mourning for the dead bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet do not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men so God says, I'm, I'm going to do something drastic and it's going to hurt and you are going to have to keep moving on. You're not going to get to stop and pause as you may want to. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And I'll, I'll just need to pause here for a moment and just say, that somebody might go, well, you know, this is really cruel and uh, unacceptable that God would allow his wife 
to die, perhaps even be the one responsible for her death. And I think that as we have really broke this down and seen what God has said, uh, she was really spared a tremendous amount of agony uh, because she's where? She's with God. And that doesn't undo the pain that Ezekiel is feeling. And Ezekiel deserves some real props for this because I don't know how I would be able to handle that. If God said, I'm going to take your wife from you and what I need you to do is I'm going to need you to contain yourself, to get dressed and go about your business. I'm going to need you not to mourn as you would want to because I need you to model something for me. I'll be honest, I, I, I don't know how he did this. I don't know how he navigated this. And you would go, well, maybe he wasn't that close to her. But verse 16, he said, I am about to take the delight of your eyes. Right? He didn't say, hey, that I'm about to come and get that, you know, that person you don't really care for. He says, the delight of your eyes. And yet, that's exactly what Ezekiel does. Ezekiel pulls it together somehow. And he, he must model for all these people what obedience in the midst of incredible loss looks like. And I will say that by the grace of God, none of us will ever have to walk this out. But every decision, listen, Christians, for a moment, every decision that we make, right, about what we become obsessed about, what we... Uh, uh, proclaim, right, whatever we rant about, the actions that we do, the, the manner in which we treat people, all of those things, we're modeling the Christian faith. We're modeling the message of God. We're modeling it to our children. We're modeling it to our friends. And here he's modeling something to all of Israel. Verse 19, and the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you are acting thus. What's going on here? All the other prophets have been saying, it's all good, it's all great, nothing to worry about. And Ezekiel's been saying the exact opposite, right? And now the day has come. And who do you think they're turning to? Who do you think they're, 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 they're going to, to try to have a conversation with? They're trying to find Ezekiel and and. Most commentators think that Ezekiel was actually probably in hiding the majority of the time, and we'll get to why in just a moment, but, but he would come out and he would do what God asked him to do, and then he, he might be in hiding and un, un, unreachable. But here he has come out and he's made himself available, and they are coming to him, and they want to know what all of these things mean. He says to them, The word of the Lord came to me. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. What does he say? The sanctuary, the temple, it was meant to be for him, but you have treated it like the temples of the pagans, and you have turned it into an idol itself, and so I will profane it. I will see it destroyed. He says that in your own pride and in your own angst you have run off you have abandoned your own sons and daughters 
and they will fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. He says you are going to be experiencing incredible loss. And this is exactly how you are going to have to carry yourselves. Because for many of you, you're going to carry yourselves all the way to Babylon. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. You know, they say that the worst thing you can do in the midst of hurt is not mourn. That you need to talk to somebody. You need to express and expel those emotions. And the model here is that they are not going to be given the opportunity. And so what will it do? It will rot away at them. And we know that that's exactly what will happen if we do not allow ourselves to go through the mourning, the grieving process. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that he has done. You shall do when this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And so God has been telling them that he is with them. He has not forgotten them, but that difficult times are coming. Uh, why is it? Because God is continuing to try to win them back. And God is also protecting his own name. Why does that matter? You go, why does God need to protect his reputation? Why does he need to do that thing? Because the world is watching and others need to be saved and they need to know that he is the one true living God. I'll close with this. Sometimes the grace we need lies in the most difficult moment of our lives. Sometimes the grace, right? We think about grace and we think, oh man, grace is when I win the, the jackpot. Like, like, like I get the lottery and I'm the big winner. Like that's the grace of God I'm looking for. But honestly, sometimes the grace that we need is right in the midst of devastation. And it's that moment that we are awakened to our need for him. My prayer for you, church, is that you will receive the extension of grace before it comes to that difficult moment that you will receive what God has for you before you are sitting there facing the entirety of your own life. But so many do not receive that grace until that moment, and that's okay, because God is more concerned with eternity than he is with this moment here right now. I've said it before, and many have said it before, but it's you and I that have a problem with dying. God is perfectly fine with us coming to be with him. And I'm not telling you to try to rush it or run into it. I think there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done here. Our families need us. But in the midst of it, we should be crying out for holiness. And we should be attempting to live righteously. That should be the goal of our lives. And Israel here at this point in the book is going to be facing tremendous hardship but God's going to be with them. And can I tell you that no matter what tomorrow looks like, that for God will be with you. And for those of us who walk in righteousness and those that will repent and, and listen to what I'm saying, those of us who repent, because it's, it's a need that, that none of us are exempt from, including me, we must be those who are ready to repent. That when we do that, Right. There is so much that God can do with us and through us. And I pray 
that for you, that you would find that incredible place of grace where God can be ministering through you. Our world right now, like it always has, desperately needs people actually using their time to talk about the gospel. Don't make the assumption that people just know, but be light in the darkness. Hope where it's needed, a city on the hill. Hey, I want to pray for you right now. If you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes as we wrap up this morning. Thank you for bearing with us uh, doing this via video. I know those who are online, it's what you do, but those that came in person, that's a little bit different. But if we could just pause what we're doing, uh, just go to the Lord. And if you, uh, if you need to make Jesus Lord of your life, the scriptures say that we make a confession. We believe in our heart. We confess with our mouths, right, that Jesus is Lord. We are saved. It's from that point our lives are transformed. And so if you want to know Jesus is Lord of your life right now, I want to pray with you. Just bow your heads. Lord, for those that would be wanting to make things right with you, Maybe it is through a rededication or a first-time dedication. They're saying, Jesus, be, be, the, be the Lord of my life. Right now, Lord, I just I rejoice with them because I know that you, you are showing up right now. Lord, there is a confession being made, and there is a name then being written in a book called Life. And I pray, Father, that they would begin the journey with incredible tenacity to pursue you to know your word, to position themselves through prayer, to hear from you. God, speak to them and use them. I pray for all of those that are hearing my voice right now that uh, are complacent in their walk. And maybe they're, they're, the complacency is out of a, a stubbornness because uh, maybe they feel really strongly about a certain thing. God, I just, whatever it is that has them bound in complacency I, I pray for freedom today i pray that that truth would prevail and that truth would set them free lord i pray not just over those that call city church home but those around the world that are your children right now that that need a a just a rekindling of the fire a, a fanning of the flames father we're praying for awakening and for revival to take place in our land lord we want to see the the the, the territory the enemy has taken to be pushed back. Lord, I pray for a young generation that has, uh, has run from you and justified their own decision-making, God, that, that they would come to know you, Lord, that they would feel the desperate need that there is to be in not just relationship with you, but in community with other believers. Lord, I pray for this to be taking place worldwide. I pray for our nation, and I pray for peace. And Lord, we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen and amen. Hey, guys, don't forget, we are doing Treat Street this week uh, on Saturday. If you haven't signed up yet, you can do that online. You can also see uh, uh, Kenneth and or Jessica, his wife. Kenneth runs the coffee bar and Blue Door. They can get you taken care of. Uh, we love you guys. We, we're praying every day for each and every one of you to find victory and to be free. Uh, have a great week. And as always, guys, go change your world.